Well, there you have another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. I'm Pete A. Turner, and I handle the Western states for Straight Outta Combat Radio episodes. This episode has me in Missoula, Montana at the Grizzly Harley-Davidson dealership, where I'm talking with U.S. Navy and U.S. Air Force career combat veteran Jack Berman. During his time in the Navy, he was a radarman, and he was also a storekeeper. Went and joined the Air Force in 1976 and served until Desert Storm as a production control supervisor for their civil engineering mission. You're going to love where we get to two combat veterans standing across a bar in a Harley dealership. It's our kind of show. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Hey, this is Pete A. Turner from Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero, a member of the Heroes Media Group. And today I am in Missoula, Montana, filling in for John Krotek, and I am at Grizzly Harley Davidson. I got to tell you, it is wonderful out here, and we have the good fortune of having a veteran across the table from me, across the bar, named Jack Berman, and he's a Vietnam vet. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. What was your MOS? What branch of service did you serve in? I served 12 years in the Navy, and I served 12 years in the Air Force. Navy first, then Air Force? Navy first, and then Air Force. Why would you do that? It just worked out that way. Okay, okay. What did you do in the Navy? I was um, a radarman. Okay. And in the Air Force, I was in construction. You were in construction? Back to the Navy time. Talk about your decision to enter into the military. How did that happen? Uh, It probably started when I was uh, five years old. Oh, wow. Fascinated with ships and water. Parents and relatives took me down to uh, see Navy ships, climbed on them when I was a kid. Last year of high school, I, I joined the reserves, 1960. After I graduated, got a letter that said, as long as you're not doing anything, come on down. So (laughs) uh, I went active at that point, went overseas. I was um, on the West Coast the whole time. I served aboard a destroyer. Before we go too far down that, let's talk about your time um, in your basic entry part of it, like the training part. Because, you know, basic training boot camp, it's evolved over time. Yeah, it's probably nothing like. <laughs> yeah, so give us an idea. What was it like? I mean, that first moment. I know when I first got to basic, I didn't. I had no idea what to expect because there wasn't really no guide for me, and I really didn't want one. But one of the first things I met a couple of guys who were just coming out of basic, and so the standard question was, "What was the hardest thing?" And they said the gas chamber. And the only gas chamber I knew was the one that had just killed Robert Alton Harris, and I'm like, "You got to go into a gas." So. You know, talk about some of those moments, those realizations. Silly stuff. I had long hair and a beard. Uh-huh. That lasted about 92 seconds, I think. I tried to hide in the back row. 
everybody did an about face, and I think I was the second one in the, <laughs> the barber chair, and uh, my hair has never grown back since. Uh, <laughs> scary parts about boot camp. I, th- I think standing out on the drill field in very hot temperatures for mm-hmm. hours at a time and watching people drop. Yeah. I didn't quite understand what they were doing or why they were doing it. Yeah. But it was all just part of aligning you to what you had to look forward to in the service, uh, following orders and doing what they said. Um, so, as far as the training, yeah, I didn't think it was hard. It, it was different. It was something that you never went through in civilian life. I got to shoot guns. Yeah. Uh, I had done that before, but these were a lot larger and uh, more powerful than uh, I had ever done before. I got to know a group of people from all over the United States that was different from the people that I grew up with in the neighborhoods where I grew up. I had lived in a couple of different states, but these people were from different regions, and some of it was interesting. Some of it was uh, made really good friends, and some of the people I didn't care for, but that was just all part of initial indoctrination, I think. So you were a West Coast Navy guy. I was a West Coast Navy guy. And you were out on ship a lot, I'm assuming, as a radar man? Yes. Okay. We went overseas twice. Okay. I went overseas twice. Ship went overseas a lot. Um, that was that was neat. That was um, an introduction to the world, cultures mm. that I had never seen before, people that didn't speak my language. Uh, I think I grew up a lot, man. Yeah, you're hitting on some things that are really important. I think, I mean, in any time, but especially right now, because we're just so angry at ourselves you know and we don't have one of the things the military gives us is an appreciation for what it means to have this nation and our impact overseas the ability for all these different people to come onto one ship one team you're from pennsylvania you're from florida you're from you know talk a little bit about how internally you know the military enables a diverse group with totally different neighborhoods country boys city kids you know a girl from, you know, North, I don't know, North Dakota can sit next to a dude from New Mexico who his native language is Spanish, not English, and they all can work together. And then let's transition that into what does America mean abroad? Because we struggle with patriotism and who we are. So I'm trying to reveal that a little bit. My initial entry into the military was prior to what you're alluding to. Okay, there. that's really good. There were no women. Uh huh. The demonstrations against us being in Vietnam hadn't occurred yet. Wow. I didn't see that until I got back mm. stateside. Um, being overseas, people were trying to emulate the U.S. There were they were. There were T-shirts on the locals that didn't make any sense to me because the translation didn't come across quite correctly. But they were trying to 
be Americans. Mm. We, at that time, always had to be in uniform. There was no civilian clothes when we went ashore. So we were representatives of the United States. I walked Hiroshima. Mm. And most of the people there were friendly and yeah. engaged us. There were a couple that had very bad feelings against us. And they expressed it verbally, but that was it. Um, the other people on ship that came from different parts of the country were amazed at uh, some of the things we saw because they'd never see it. You'd never see some of the things, the cultures. The cultures were so different from where they grew up. and But I think everybody got along well. And you adapted. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there were some differences between people from the South and people of color mm-hmm. in different races. And sometimes it came to arguments, but... Beyond that, I never saw anything like you would see growing up in the 60s. From your time, and obviously a different time, but abroad, what was the perceptions of America? I mean, it's a different era, but still, what were the, how did people see us by and large? I mean, you, you're in uniform. If it, yes. It's easy to hate or love that. Yeah, um, for the most part. In Japan, in China, in Asia, in general, there, with the exception of when we went to war, there were no ill, Ill feelings. Most people were very friendly and, mm-hmm. and helpful. So um, you're saying they hated us? <laughs> no. Uh, I was in Japan, and um, I decided to go sightseeing yeah. by myself. I got on a train and in uniform, in uniform, yeah. and rode to a city in the interior and was lost. <laughs> People showed me how to find restaurants. People showed me which way to get back on the train to to go back. I mean, people could have you know ignored me or, yeah. or given me problems, but you know, I was a eighteen year old, nineteen year old kid. I didn't know what I was doing. And I was dumb and just floating around, having yeah. a good time. And uh, it was exciting. We seem to be having this debate again over patriotism. Uh, obviously, you don't. It, it can be too much. It's definitely not right to hate where you're from. But what's your sense? What is patriotism? How do you define it? It's liking where you are and in who you are and the country you're from and why you live there. It's a tough question. Um, I don't understand the rationale between some of the people of what their complaint is nowadays. I watch the news and I watch people complain. I wonder, have they ever been anywhere in their life? Mm. Have they been to 
countries outside of the United States and and seeing how people in other places have to live, yeah, not want to live. Right. Here we get to do what we want 99.9% of the time. We can live the way we want to live, whether we want to be rich or poor. You know, if you want to put in the time and, and make a lot of money and, and be rich, yeah. you can do that. If you want to live in the woods in a tent, you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> and and nobody cares one way or another. Right. But there's a group of people that think, I don't know, that we have too much, that we shouldn't we shouldn't live the way we live. You know, then they need to go somewhere else. I think. Yeah. Uh, I don't understand their ration. Find rational their place at all no. instead of making what yeah, they want. Why are they yeah. trying to guide what I do rather than take care of themselves? Right. No, that's fair. So you also joined the Air Force. How did that just work out? The last years of the Navy I spent in the Reserve. Okay. I was inland in California. I know you're from yep. California. You know what Thule Fog is. Sure, I sure do. Uh, I had to drive to a base in Thule Fog, and I said, this is ridiculous. Riding a motorcycle in Thule Fog is terrifying. <laughs> Walking in Thule Fog is <laughs> There was an Air Force base closer than the naval base. Mm, okay. I went and talked to them, and they said, sure, come on down. I said, I don't know anything about what you do. And they said, no worry, we'll, we'll teach you. Yeah. So I transitioned over into the Air Force Reserve. Is this Travis Air Force Base? No, this is in Central California. Okay. And I learned a new MOS. I was... Um, a production control person. I did paperwork and assigned jobs for trades. Okay. So if you were a plumber or electrician or uh, did anything in the trades, uh, I would assign jobs to those people on the on the base. Yeah. And then do the paperwork that was needed to do that. And that's how I got into the Air Force. Did you deploy from to Vietnam in the Navy or the Air Force? Navy. Okay. Talk a little bit about your time in Vietnam, because obviously someone who does radar and you deploy, are you not on a, you're not on like a patrol boat. Are you no, on we ship? were on a destroyer. On a destroyer. Okay. And so were well, you were just taking care of aircraft missions, that kind of thing, and trying to help those? No, or? we ran up and down the coast. We looked for um, enemy radar units. Mm -hmm. We could track them. We did, we did chase aircraft carriers. At that time, there weren't helicopters mm -hmm. to go out. If a plane went down, so right. we we did lifeguard missions. We okay. went and picked somebody up if they went down. Right. We patrolled the harbors. Oh, okay. We shot at the coastline. That's, yeah, that's dangerous. And mainly we ran up and down the coast and we were a presence. When you look at transitioning, you get through the Air Force. You served a full career, I'm assuming. You yes. retired? Okay. How, how long were you in total? 24 years. 24 years. So you get ready to retire and transition out. Were you reserves when you got out? Yeah. So you'd already had, you were sort of transitioned in, in a sense in that you weren't full-time in. But Correct. Describe your transition. Of getting out? Yeah. I had just got off of active duty. We were deployed for Desert Storm. Um, came back and I said, I think I had enough. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm old and older now 
I do had I did have a civilian career before getting deployed for Desert Storm. I went back to that and I said, "It's time." And yeah, and and that was it. Looking back at it, yeah, I might have stayed in longer. I think. Okay. Um, what did you need to hear to stay in longer? What is what is uh, Jack today? Tell Jack then. It's funny. Um, I really enjoyed some of it, and yeah. some of it I didn't care for. I like the the camaraderie. Uh, I'd like traveling, mm-hmm. going overseas, and, and doing different things, and being back at a job nine to five was sort of boring. Yeah, yeah, I say that. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, it was just different, and I like the mix in my life at that time. I think. How did Vietnam compare your Vietnam deployment compare to your Desert Shield deployment? Uh, totally different. Yeah, I bet. Now we had women. Uh-huh. Uh huh. How diff- did that? How I many different did, branch of the service? Yeah. How did you deal with the the females around like that? I mean, did that bother you, or you you seem like a pretty go with it kind of guy? No, it didn't bother me at all. Um, they did their jobs. Some of them could outdo the men sure yeah. uh some of them didn't want to be there i didn't know why yeah. they were there but <laughs> they were i think i think at the time the military was offering you know a lot of school packages and stuff like that and, and a lot of people joined right for that reason um I think people join the military for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Some are told they have to. Sure. Some look at the, some look at the benefits. Yeah. Some look at it as a career. People join thinking one thing and and decide no this isn't really for me. So everybody reacts different and yeah. those that stay tend to bond a lot differently than those that are only part-time. Being deployed Air Force versus Navy, you were going to say something about that, and I kind of changed the direction of the conversation. Go back to that. Totally different ways of life. Mm-hmm. You know, Navy uh, on a ship, you're confined to 200 and 300 feet by 40 feet, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, there's 150 people on there yeah. that you see every day <laughs> in the Air Force. Uh, you may be on a base with tens of thousands of people. Yeah. The command structure was a lot harder to deal with in the Air Force uh, than it was in the Navy. Navy was a little more easier going, I, just because it was closer and you were you were bonding. Right. Okay. Being enlisted. Yeah. You know, in the Air Force, you're always meeting a new officer. And some of them take being an officer a little different than others. So that was different. But the Navy also stratifies officers and enlisted pretty heavily also. Does that, was that a problem at all? I mean, you guys are on the same ship, but when you're home, you know, there's officers mess and there's significantly different living conditions quite often in the Navy, at least back from that era, as far as I yes. understand. I think it depended on personalities okay. more than anything. Okay. But I found that the, in the Air Force, the officers were uh, not as close to the enlisted as in the Navy. 
So the, okay. the they weren't as personable, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Let's get into you you get out. What what did you end up doing? What was your profession once you got out fully out of the military? It's the early nineties, you're done, you've had enough. What do you do you go back to your full time job full time then or Yeah, I was in data processing. Okay. Wow, you you just do anything you want. Yeah. <laughs> radar construction planning and then data processing wow mm. totally different fields yeah yeah you ride harleys you got chaps on right now which already instantly makes you cool cool chambray shirt no it's cold out it's cold <laughs> fair enough what what is it about harley you you sat in when vanessa was doing her interview and so you know this part of the question but harley has something where it represents america and america presents harley like they have this give and take harley just is an american brand what do you think what do you think it is about the brand that does that and then what do you personally get out of being part of this community the brand that's interesting you know that that it is an all-american brand right after i got out i i took up other hobbies okay i scuba dive nice and i'd scuba dive in a lot of different places around the world. And I always saw places that sold Harley Davidson t-shirts. Right. They didn't have a motorcycle or they were driving uh, a motor scooter. Right. But they yeah. had a Harley Davidson. Had that spirit. Okay. Yeah. So that meant something to people that don't live here that was a reflection of, of this brand. And it didn't matter where I was, you could always find one. You know, yeah. a, a little island in the South Pacific, and there was a Harley-Davidson t-shirt, you know. Yeah. As, as far as, I rode several different kinds of motorcycles. I ended up on Harleys. Um, and what do you ride right now? Right now? Yeah. I ride uh, Ultra Classic. Okay. I have a Dyna. Um, I had a Triumph. Yeah. I had a BSA. I had a Honda. You, um, just like your work, you did it all. Well, you, you just change depending on your riding, what you like to ride. Yeah. The the Dyna I ride around town, mm -hmm. it's fast. Um, it's easy to ride. The Ultra is, it's a big, heavy bike. Yeah. It's beautiful on the highways. It, it's a good cruising bike. Um we just came back from a week in Canada. Oh, wow. Yeah. Riding through their countryside. And, you know, it, it's like people that don't know what 60 cars are or 70 cars. It's like old Cadillacs yeah. versus a new Cadillac. You know, you're looking at 6,000 pounds of the car versus 3,000 pounds. You know, right. They ride totally different. So yeah. heavier bike, ride smoother, uh, and you just sit back and enjoy the countryside. Yeah. And, and that's what I like about riding, I think, is you're free. Mm -hmm. You're one with nature, I guess. You, you can, you get to smell <laughs> what's out there. Yeah. Um, you feel the wind. You hear the sounds. You don't get any of that. Being in a car. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of times a car is a A to B. How fast can I get to B? 
you said riding on the Canadian countryside, and I, I instantly was there with you. I disappeared from this place, and I was there, and I'm like, God, that would be, yeah, it would be great. And it really is, I mean, it is all American, right? Like, your ability to get out, go out and ride, and, and just be in that part of, you know, and just go see and experience life. Like, li- truly, and I, I, here I am being a homer, I don't even own a Harley-Davidson, but you're, you're living to ride, and you're riding to live. I mean, it really, that's what you're describing. I, I love that. When you look at the community, especially here in Missoula, like what does that mean? I mean, obviously you guys are kindred in that you want to go out and you want to ride and you want to go to Canada and do that as a group. But it's still like an isolated group thing, it seems like, where your ride is your ride. You might do it with friends and you might talk, but during that ride, it's it's your ride. Yeah, you're not talking to anybody. You're uh-huh. you're within your head. You're, yeah. you're yeah. doing whatever you do. You're looking at everything that's there. You have to pay attention to the road. You have to pay attention to yeah. uh, everything that's around you. And and still you see more than you ever see when you're in a car. It's it's hard to explain unless you're doing it. Yeah, when you're minding your own life every yeah. second. But also, there's yeah, you're, while you do that, you're taking in everything else. That's for sure. You, you were a combat soldier. Yeah. When you're out on your own or with a patrol you're you're in tune to everything that's around you absolutely yeah you're doing something similar on the bike i mean you're not looking at somebody shooting at you but you're looking for a deer running in front of you or an elk you know yeah i mean you you and i both know as guys ride motorcycles i've looked at someone who looks right through you and i save them from killing me yes because i check up i know you don't see me and i i mean every single time i ride every single time i ride someone tries to kill me not not of course it's not active like in a combat zone but they well you're invisible yeah yeah it's hard to believe yeah but but, you know a lot of drivers just can't see you for whatever reason yeah so yeah you have to you have to drive defensively constantly What's your mantra? Enjoy life. You never know how long you're going to be here. Right? Yeah. As we all get older, you you see different people go on a natural path that ultimately ends in their their end. And, uh, you know, the longer you live, the more you see those paths and how squirrely and sudden they can be. You know, the off-ramps are everywhere. I, I um, have breakfast with about 25 Vietnam, Vietnam veterans. Mm-hmm. Every Friday morning. Yeah. Some are in very good shape and others are not. Yeah. Why do you guys have such a tight community? I mean, the, the Marines are very, very tight a, as a service, right? But what I think about the, the tightest communities, it's the Marines because they are just, they are or a family and they're so small. And then there's Vietnam vets, like the Gulf War vets. They don't coalesce like you guys do, right? It's just, that, it's That's different. true. We invite them to come sit with us. Yeah, and, and they don't, and they don't. They won't. And, uh, I've got friends, but I'm I have friends because I'm a connector. It's my service is a glue to my friends who are in my era, but we don't have that magnetism that you guys have. What what is it? I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know what draws this group together versus other groups. I mean, there's a lot of issues with um, promises made by the government. Sure that haven't come true and there's a lot of 
vets in your era that are having tremendous issues, and we tried to bring them in. We've had a couple of meetings with Congress people and all of us, your era, our yeah. era, and they're hurting bad, yeah. some of them, and yet we can't get them to sit down and, and just talk. I mean, that's all we do is we yeah. talk, we tell sea stories or whatever the equivalent is yeah. in the Army. Um, yeah. And it, I think it just helps people to to relive some of that. So, I mean, obviously I've got a lot of combat time, a ton, and I have PTSD. And I leave the D in there because I don't know when I'll get better. A lot of my peers say it's PTS or post-traumatic growth. And that, that's nice. That's not me, though. Like every day, and I, I don't know how, how this, I want to illustrate this so you can comment on it, but I'm fine. I'm not in danger, but that doesn't mean that death doesn't call me up on the phone every day and go, hey, you want to come over? You know, so I feel like a, a sense of it, right? And I, I have ways of battling. It. And again, I'm not in danger, but my peers, not all of them have that. You know, they're left to their own devices and they drink too much or whatever, right? And the bad habits mount and all this Some stuff. of them are totally unable to function i mean yeah. they just want to sit in a corner and yeah yeah i've uh, waited minute to minute i've sat there and going can i make it to the next minute and i could it's horrifying what um what do you guys deal i mean you know you're you're older than me you have you've seen more of the end than i have how do you guys deal with this you know i don't think we had ptsd as an acronym, right? One, <laughs> yeah. When we got out of Vietnam, I mean, we were in, and I've seen the same with the people I know from Korea and in World War Two. You know, when we came back, we didn't talk about things. People didn't want to hear it. We were the bad guys, and I think people just shut their mouth and got a job and went to work and, and just kept pushing it further back. I don't know what changed. Why why people can't handle things the same as World War One, World War Two. I have a theory. Do you want to hear it? Sure, absolutely. In terms of actually outside of the camp i can't really speak to on the post right because that wasn't really my reality but the tension is so high all the time the rubber band is stretched all the time but the contact is so brief but it's so significant that you have to always be like if you can elevate hypervigilance to a higher level you're scanning everything looking for the smallest detail of difference because if you don't see it kaboom and then it's because it's not contact like you guys would have in the jungles where it would be dedicated attacks with traditional things. This is just surprise all the time. So we're always waiting for that horror movie scare that boom. And you're like, oh, God damn it. I hate that. You know? So it's, so I think that's what it is. Like you're just always tense waiting for it to happen. So even if it doesn't happen, you're still damaged. You never unwind. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel threat all the time. All the time. I have to, I don't carry a weapon in part because I, it keeps me safe from me. But also, I, if I had one, it would facilitate my fear. I, I think a lot of it 
also depends on your job, what you were doing. Yeah, yeah. Vietnam, I, I had a very good friend who was a, a gunner in a helicopter. And he got back, and he could never sit without his back to something. And he he ended up not doing very well yeah. in the long run. So I, I I think, yeah, the the more stress, the tighter the rubber band is stretched, the harder it is. I, I mean, a, a lot of the people that I know now that served on submarines, mm-hmm. um, that's pretty scary when you're underwater and you're being hunted, charged. Yeah. Um, and those old boats creaked and, and moaned. But they had a good time. That didn't stretch them as as tight as being yeah. in the jungle or in the desert, not knowing what's going to pop up two, two feet from you. you know. It's weird. There's, there is probably a difference there. What do people need to know about veterans that maybe they don't realize? That they don't know. They have absolutely no concept of what most of them have gone through and why they've done it. Yeah. Not that they're not patriotic. Yeah. But they just don't understand the the difference between somebody who has served and somebody who hasn't. I have a lot of friends over the years that have never been in the military. They just have no concept of what it is. Yeah, there are so many little details. This is where I focus on my storytelling. As I say, here's a detail. Like, you couldn't even, I don't even think about it. But, like, pre-deployment, you're going to account for your will in some way. Like, you will have a will. You're, it's an order, you know. And so you literally sit down and go, all right, if I died, what do I? And you go through the process, you know. Right. Or uh, in my era, you have to put down code words so that if Delta Force comes and breaks you out of a room, they can check who you are in an instant. And you're like, well, what am I going to remember if I've had my face kicked in and and I can't barely talk without? Like, you have to think about that. Civilians have no idea that you do that. And then you go to the next station and they're like, here's your Bible. Oh, you don't want a Bible? You want a current, you know? And like, you go through all these choices that are. That they never made. Yeah. yeah. Or never would have to. And, and, and don't understand why yeah. you had to do that. What does freedom mean to you? Boy, that's hard to put into words. You know, I've, I've there's a motorcycle ride that goes from California to D.C. once a year. And I've done it twice. Good for you. And we go to small towns. Mm-hmm. And we go to via veterans' hospitals. And we we go to a small town, and and I'll bet most of the people in those towns haven't served, but they've known somebody that has. And they give you the shirt off their back. And I don't understand why, but they do. I watched Harold Bray. And he was, he's part of the few that are remaining from the USS Indianapolis sinking. He went, they went to their annual thing. And when you get to the, 
Now I'm going to get emotional. When you <laughs> get to Indy and you're Harold Bray and you walk off, you know, they're like, everybody stop. No one move on the airplane. We got a special guy getting off. And then he gets the welcome when he's there in Indy. There's a uh, police honor guard waiting to welcome him, you know. And there is something special that we get from that, from these small towns, these other yeah. places. I don't know how to put it in words. Um, it's a feeling. Back when we were both feeling it's I, dusty in here. I kind of wipe my eyes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to do that. And it's not just us. Yeah. We went to uh, Pearl Harbor a couple of years back. And we're standing in, in the monument. Japanese guy next to me. And he was on the other side. Yeah. And he was as tore up as we were. It's hard to put in words. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Yeah.